Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is Tom Greggs, who holds the Mariscal Chair of Divinity at the University of Aberdeen. Tom has made a study of the life and impact of German theologian and author Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Tom, tell us about how you came to know Dietrich Bonhoeffer and your interest in him. I started reading Bonhoeffer really when I, when I was very young, when I was a, a teenager at school, 16, 17. Uh, and I got interested in him, first of all, because uh, I'd read about this theologian who talked about a thing called religionless Christianity. Uh, and as a young Christian, I wanted to go and explore what that might mean. So first of all, I read, read his letters and papers from prison, which are the correspondence that he wrote after being arrested by the Gestapo when he was in a military prison uh, in Berlin. Uh, and that thought really is uh, a, a thought that I found utterly captivating. And it's amazing to my mind that some of the most significant theology of the 20th century emerged out of uh, a tiny six foot long cell where there was a bench and a bucket and a narrow bed. Uh, and then having read that, I, I read his book, uh, which was published at that time under the title, The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, and it struck me as being remarkable that there was a theologian in the 20th century who had been absolutely at the center of the plot to assassinate Hitler, who had paid the ultimate price in, in dying um, as a political criminal, uh, and who had written eight, nine years before a book that said that Christians had to be obedient to Christ, even to the point of death. Wow, I mean, there's, there's so many pieces of that story that just seems to be juxtaposed to each, each other, doesn't it? So let's, let's kind of explore his story a bit. I can see why there was so much interest. Uh, his kind of move to faith and even just belief and faith, he came from a very wealthy family, didn't he? He did, yeah. He, he was born in 1906 into the Kaiser's Germany, and he was certainly part of that upper middle class, aristocratic class that saw themselves as being the inheritors of the great German intellectual uh, and cultural history. Uh, so his father was a professor of psychiatry and neurology at the University of Berlin. His mother was an aristocrat who ran a very busy household with a good number of servants and nannies. Uh, and her parents were aristocrats. And in fact, her father was uh, the preacher for, for Kaiser Wilhelm II. So he was the court preacher with that. So he's born into an immensely privileged context. And it seems quite strange, really, to think that somebody born into that context should end up dying uh, the death that he does in a concentration camp um, and dying really because of his opposition to uh, Hitler, not necessarily singularly because of the political component, but because he believes that as a Christian that he has to pay the ultimate price for the cost of his faith. Now, as he, as he was kind of developing as a, as a young man, I mean, his family uh, were in medicine and science. They weren't a kind of overly religious family, were they? No, they weren't. I mean, one of his, his grandparents, his grandfather, was a, a kind of court preacher. So there, there was some degree of, of theolo theological background in terms of his upbringing. Um, but no, as a family, they weren't really. I mean, his mother was concerned that her children prayed and went to Sunday school. Uh, but that's probably as far as it went, really, in terms of his early life. And in fact, his father and his brothers teased Bonhoeffer when at the age of 14, he said he was going to be a theologian. Uh, and they said that he shouldn't waste his time with what they considered to be a petty bourgeois institution. Um, and that there were all kinds of problems and it was outmoded and dying. And, and Bonhoeffer's slightly plucky response was to say, well, if that's the case, I'm going to change it. 
uh, but it wasn't a natural path for him. In fact, uh, at one stage in his life, he thought about becoming uh, a pianist or a professional musician. And there's a, there's a funny comment in one of the diaries that he didn't follow that path because his fingers were too fat. So he, he, he definitely was not somebody who from the start was destined to be a, a great theologian in any way. And you know, it must have been utterly strange both for the parishioners and for him to find this kind of high-class aristocratic pastor in the context of pastoring to people in all kinds of different settings. In the reading that you've done, is there anything that kind of points at why he would have made that choice at, at 14? What was it in him or in his life that led him to that point? I mean, it's, there's a bit of a story really to the background of that because it's not entirely clear. I mean, there's certainly, he's certainly very influenced by his um, maternal grandmother, Julie Bonhoeffer, who seems to have been a force to reckon with, uh, in fact, uh, when in 1933 Hitler announced that Aryans shouldn't shop in Jewish shops uh, and stormtroopers were sent to guard the doors. At the age of 90, she barged past the stormtroopers, did her shopping, and on the way out to these befuddled gentlemen in brown shirts, she announced to them, I will always do my shopping where I have always done my shopping. Uh, and she, she certainly was a character that seems to have had a significant effect upon Bonhoeffer's life. Uh, and also Bonhoeffer's nannies, um, seem, who, uh, two of whom... Uh, came from a kind of evangelical, uh, a Moravian background, seemed to have had an influence on him as well. And, and the sort of spirituality that his mother sought to instill in the children did too. Uh, I, I think we also can't underestimate the fact that at a, at a young age, uh, Bonhoeffer's brother, Walter, dies in the Second World War in 1918. And that's, that's really cataclysmic for the family. I mean, it disrupts things in all kinds of ways. And what would have been an idyllic family life is utterly disrupted. Uh, and Bonhoeffer at that point is given... Walter's confirmation Bible um, as, a, as a gift to remember his brother by. And he keeps that with him throughout his life. And you know, part of me wonders whether you know, the significance of that act really did have an effect upon Bonhoeffer. As a schoolboy, he, he was interested in philosophy and theology, he read people like Schleiermacher and Hegel. He was obviously prodigiously talented, precociously so. Um, but it, but it's, not, it's not absolutely clear at that point why he goes into theology rather than anything else. One of his neighbours is Adolf von Harnack, the great church historian, and Bonhoeffer seems to have been one of von Harnack's favourites. Um, so whether there was some kind of influence there, I, I, I don't know. But, I mean, for Bonhoeffer himself, in terms of his own reflection on it, there's definitely actually a shift that happens in his life in terms of what this all means to him uh, after he's done two doctorates in theology. So... Uh, Bonhoeffer writes his first doctorate at the age of 21 uh, and then another doctorate two years later, the Habilitation, which you have to write in Germany if you want to be uh, a lecturer. Uh, but it's only when he goes to America that he begins really to talk about understanding what faith is. So there's quite a long journey through. For all that at the age of 14, he announced he wanted to be a theologian. Um, I wonder whether, Bonhoeffer probably wouldn't put it in these kinds of terms, but I wonder whether being a Christian and what that means is something that happens after his training as a professional theologian. So interesting because you mentioned Schleimacher and Hegel and, and, and they weren't particularly evangelical in their thinking and yet he ends up in that space. Um, sort of. I mean, I, th I, think, I think one of the difficulties with the term evangelical is that it doesn't translate across uh, from German into English. Evangelisch in German just means Protestant. Uh, and, and certainly... Um, it is the case that Bonhoeffer is deeply influenced by Hull, who is a, a historian of Luther, and Bonhoeffer takes Luther's theology very seriously throughout the rest of his life, a theology that says that only grace can save humanity. 
and Bonhoeffer comes under the influence um, of Karl Barth uh, during the end of the writing of his first doctoral dissertation. And his second doctoral dissertation is um, very much in dialogue with Barth, although, although Bonhoeffer isn't uncritical of Barth. Um, it, and Barth and Bonhoeffer correspond the, the, the whole of, of Bonhoeffer's life. There are, there are actually quite touching letters that still exist between, between the two of them. Um, I, I'm not sure that Bonhoeffer would have owned the term evangelical even as we mean it. I, I think he'd have thought that that was putting um, labels on things that didn't need to be labeled. I think what he would have owned is uh, the desire to be a thoroughgoing disciple of Jesus Christ and to take all of the teachings of Jesus Christ seriously. And, and I think that the shift from thinking about that intellectually to thinking about that in terms of the way that he lives his life, the sort of practice that he engages in, the sort of ministry that he has, really is something that comes about um, when he moves to America. There's obviously a transition in all of that. You can't do these kind of sharp before and after moments. Uh, but something happens in America which changes things um, and certainly changes the way in which Bonhoeffer understands his faith. Uh, perhaps a shift from understanding Christianity in relation to the kind of uh, intellectual and cultural heritage that Christianity had had, uh, the significance of rigorous thought, to, to recognizing that for all that it must have meant something and for all that he'd been a fervent um, Christian and preached uh, through those years, that it had to mean something all the more to your heart. Tom, you mentioned Schleimark and Hegel, and, and in today's terms, we wouldn't refer to them or think about them as evangelical. Um, but Bonhoeffer ends up in the, the space that most of us would be comfortable with. What's the situation there, do you think? I mean, there's a difficulty really in terms of translating what's effectively an English-speaking category into German terms. I mean, the German word evangelisch just means Protestant. Um, it, it, it's certainly the case that in Berlin as a student, Bonhoeffer is influenced very much by Hull, uh, who is an historian of Luther and Luther's theology. And Luther becomes a very central theme within Bonhoeffer's writing. Uh, Luther obviously is the theologian who at the Reformation declares that it isn't works, but grace that saves humanity. And it's Luther really and Luther's thoughts that accompany Bonhoeffer throughout his life. Um, I'm not sure that Bonhoeffer would have talked about himself in terms of being an evangelical, even as we mean it. I think he would have talked about himself as being somebody who sought to be obedient to Jesus Christ. In fact, at points, he's slightly skeptical about over-emotionalism that maybe betrays his class and his upbringing and his age. Um, but he's certainly somebody who is, who's concerned about those types of themes. He does very much come under the influence of Karl Barth when he's writing his uh, first doctoral dissertation. And his second doctoral dissertation um, is in direct engagement with Barth, um, though not uncritically at, at points. And he and Barth correspond throughout the rest of their lives. Um, to one another or throughout the rest of Bonhoeffer's life. In fact, it's Barth who writes to Bonhoeffer when he's a pastor in London saying the uh, door of your church is on fire. You must return by first ship, uh, calling Bonhoeffer back to Germany, uh, recognizing that Bonhoeffer can make a contribution in Germany that he can't make in England during the Nazi era. And, Bonhoeffer, and Barth himself writes later in life that he's anxious about whether he unexpectedly caused Bonhoeffer's martyrdom by, by calling him back to Germany in that sort of context. So he, I think Bonhoeffer is somebody who wouldn't want to deal with those kinds of categories. In fact, one of the ways in which he is captivating as a thinker is that he isn't easily captured. He captures the polyphony of life. Uh, he captures particularly the polyphony of life as it seeks to be obedient to Jesus Christ in the context in which we find ourselves. Um, so. Yeah, he's interested in those kinds of critical thinkers. 
Um, he's interested in the history and culture of Christianity, the intellectual heritage that Christianity has. Uh, but something I think does grasp him in America that begins to change things slightly for him. It's not an absolute, you can't do a kind of straightforward before and after with him, but there is a, a noticeable change in Bonhoeffer in America that isn't just noticeable to him. He, he comments on it in his own diary, uh, but noticeable to those around him as well. One of the things that, that strikes struck you as a young man, but strikes anybody today looking at Bonhoeffer is the rise of the whole uh, of Nazi Germany, of Hitler, and how he was to respond to that. And now the church in, in Germany kind of responded in different ways, didn't it? What were the different ways that the church has responded? I know that's a kind of very broad question. Yeah, it's, a, it's a big question. I mean, you might need to take a step back there and, and to recognize that um, when Hitler's elected, almost immediately after the election, the following month in 1933, the following month after Hitler becomes chancellor, he uh, enforces the Aryan clauses, uh, which is a piece of history that's famously known. The Aryan Clause is basically that anybody holding a position within the state cannot be Jewish or of Jewish descent. Um, and we might not think that that's a kind of key thing for the church, uh, but it becomes a very live issue for, for the German Protestant churches. Um, in Germany, all the different areas have what are called Landeskirchen, sort of um, semi-autonomous uh, churches with slightly different traditions for the different regions. Um, and, and what happens following the Aryan Clause is that there is uh, a general synod of the Prussian church, uh, I think in the September, that, that follows the Aryan Clause, which I think is in the April of 1933. Um, and, and, and history has nicknamed this synod uh, the Brown Synod because there were so many brown shirts present. Uh, and, and what happens in the synod is an acceptance of the Aryan Clause for the church um, and a movement um, within the church towards a closer unity with the Nazi state. Um, but we might think, I mean, that's the kind of headline, but we might think of there as being three groups within that. Uh, that one group is a group that we would refer to as the German Christians, who thought that effectively Nazi ideology and cultural Christianity really could reinforce one another and that Nazi ideology could be a particular expression of cultural Christianity. They even produced in the end their own Bible, which got rid of the whole of the Old Testament. They got rid of any mentions of Judaism or any what they perceived as being Jewish texts. They were anxious about Paul because Paul was Jewish. Um, it seems like they didn't really bank on the fact that Jesus himself was born uh, uh, Jewish, but that, and that was a live issue for those in the other camps. But that's, so that's one camp, and they pushed for um, a, a Reichsbishop, a kind of national bishop who would be the embodiment of this. And they were successful in pushing for that. Um, so uh, Bishop Muller, Reichsbishop Muller is appointed as a kind of central figure um, for both the Nazi party and the church and the Protestant church in Germany. Um, effectively what they wanted and, and what they succeeded in getting in the end was a church that was almost a department of state as part of uh, the propaganda movement, if you like, um, within the Nazi state. So that's one side, and they would have been the brown shirt side. There's, there's then a kind of, kind of category in the middle, I think, of people who just thought, for the sake of the church's survival, they had to go along with that. They, they had to compromise to some degree. You know, they could do whatever they did quietly, but they weren't going to stick their neck out in this sort of context, and it wasn't their fight. Uh, and then about a quarter of the people um, within the German church uh, rejected the idea of 
um, the German Christians of there being a Reichskirche, a, a, a national church and a, and a national bishop. Uh, and they formed what was uh, called the Confessing Church. Uh, and the Confessing Church emerges out of a rival synod uh, that takes place in Barmen uh, and comes up with a confession called the Barmen Declaration, uh, which seeks to define the relationship between the state and the church in ways that, while not overtly opposing Nazism, ways that made it very clear that they didn't understand the relationship between the state and the church to be the, of the sort that the German Christians did, uh, and that they would, uh, in subsequent councils like the, the, the Dalem Synod, that they would speak out on behalf of those who were Jewish. Of course, Jewish wasn't just a category related to religious identity, it was also related to ethnicity. Uh, and, a, and a live issue was the question of um, how people within Germany were to understand baptized Christians who were um, ethnically Jewish. So even if they had one grandparent uh, or some great grandparents who were Jewish uh, and had lived for generations as Christians, they nevertheless uh, would have not been allowed to be full citizens within Germany. And Bonhoeffer fitted into the Confessing Church? Yeah, Bonhoeffer very much fits into the Confessing Church. And, and actually, within the Confessing Church um, is a kind of hardliner, if, if, you, if you like. He's one of the people that, that is most outspoken yeah. uh, over the question of um, speaking out for and, and, and assisting those who are suffering persecution of the Jews. So as, as the war starts, and, and Bonhoeffer is, I know there was a big dis decision on his behalf about whether he would be overseas or whether he would stay in Germany, and there was some movement there. But he decides to kind of stay, and I know this is leaping forward in the, in the story. What, what is your take on what, how he dealt with uh, Nazism, Germany, war, and being a Christian? <laughs> um, I think the headline is that Bonhoeffer felt that he had to be absolutely obedient to the call of Jesus Christ. And that would be the headline for me. Um, the shift that takes place when he spends his time as a postdoc in America is that he writes uh, of the transformation from the phraseological to the real. Um, and at that point, I think what happens for Bonhoeffer is that all of the intellectual components or all of the groundwork that he's done in theology becomes absolutely crystal clear to him in terms of its call upon his life. Um, even if that call involves spending two years in a military prison in a concentration camp, even if that call involves him doing things that he's unsure about ethically. Um, so my, my headline, although there's huge complexities in the story, Absolutely. My, my headline would be that all that Bonhoeffer seeks to do is to be faithful to Christ, even if that involves, in the end, I think this is where he becomes a very interesting figure and a very interesting theologian, even if that involves in the end doing things that he thinks he will have to be condemned for because they run contrary to the command of Christ, even if they might be for the good of the people. Tom, give us some of the influences that caused uh, Bonhoeffer to be more spiritually aware. I, th I think one of the significant influences uh, on his life has to be the event of the death of his brother in 1918 in the First World War. Bonhoeffer had had this idyllic upbringing um, and the family is really shaken to the core in, in light of what happens. His mother retreats, his father goes even further into himself, although he's always a quiet man. Uh, and Bonhoeffer is deeply upset by, by that context. But, but within that context, Bonhoeffer is given his brother Walter's confirmation Bible, which he keeps with him through the remainder of his life. Um, and I mean, we can't tell what happens on the inside of a person, 
But, but it would seem to me that part of his choice to be a theologian might well emerge from the sense of that gift and that accompanying presence through the whole of his life, uh, alongside all of the other different influences that took place. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview, and transform beliefs, attitudes, and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. You just talked about the Confessing Church. Now, Bonhoeffer was part of the Confessing Church, wasn't he? He, he was part of the Confessing Church. And, and, and if you like, within the Confessing Church, um, we might think of him as being a bit of a hardliner, really, in terms of his opposition to Hitler uh, and his concern that the church speaks out for the Jews. In fact, he famously stated, only he who shouts for the Jews can sing the Gregorian chants. So saying that you can only sing the Psalms if you're prepared to stand up for the Jews in the context of Nazi Germany. And he's involved in some of the uh, narrower synods that were concerned particularly for speaking out in favor of the Jews. In, in fact, Bonhoeffer in the end becomes the principal of an illegal seminary training pastors for the confessing church uh, so that there can be genuine opposition to Nazism from within uh, Protestant Christianity. You mentioned that his time in America had a huge influence on him. What, do you, what was it about that time? Bonhoeffer goes off to, to America as the, the Sloan Fellow. So he wins this prestigious postdoctoral fellowship um, to study at Union Theological Seminary. And, and, and largely he's very impressed with the level, unimpressed with the level of theological engagement. And he spends all his time telling them that they should read Karl Barth from what I can pick up. Uh, but he does like Reinhold Niebuhr and he stays in correspondence with Niebuhr uh, throughout his life. In fact, Niebuhr is one of the people who are following Bonhoeffer's death, points to how significant he will be for 20th century theology. But perhaps more profound than that is uh, a relationship that Bonhoeffer has with an African-American Christian uh, who is also a student in New York at the same time. And, and this African-American Christian introduces Bonhoeffer to African-American spirituality. And as well as going along to Riverside Church, which is the church next to Union Seminary, where it's sort of expected that you would go if you were a student, uh, Bonhoeffer finds himself going along to the afternoon services at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. Uh, and he also finds himself at this time teaching a Sunday school uh, class for them and teaching a women's Bible study group. Uh, and this seems to have a remarkable effect upon Bonhoeffer, the sort of spirituality that he sees there, the sort of uh, deep concern for faithfulness to Christ in a very tangible and lived way in a context of suffering and oppression in a, in a pre-civil rights context. Um, and in that context, Bonhoeffer writes in his diary uh, about the fact that for him there has been a shift from the phraseological to the real that there has been a shift from thinking about theology academically, thinking about theology as a discipline, even thinking about theology as a minister, uh, and thinking about the way in which this impacts real lived life, uh, real life in terms of uh, the way that we respond to the call of Christ. In fact, when he goes back to Germany, he plays records of, of spirituals um, from uh, the African-American churches to people, uh, and he is concerned, very concerned with the plight uh, of those who are not white in America in a pre-civil uh, rights context. As well as that, uh, Bonhoeffer becomes great friends with Jean Lasseur, who is a French theologian and a pacifist. And it is Lasseur who really challenges Bonhoeffer to take seriously the call and command of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, and Bonhoeffer, before this point, um, had defended the need to engage in war. He'd said that it was, in fact, 
Uh, to be a conscientious objector was a betrayal of the estates which God had set up in terms of nationhood uh, and the relationship between the state and the church. Uh, but Lasser deeply challenges Bonhoeffer to take seriously the teachings of Jesus, uh, particularly in the Sermon of the Mount, particularly the gospel accounts of what Jesus calls a faithful Christian to. Uh, and Bonhoeffer is deeply moved by this. In fact, Lasser writes that he notices a tangible change in Bonhoeffer through this time. I guess in some ways, um, taking Bonhoeffer out of the culture in which he was part of the privileged aristocratic intellectual elite and placing him in a culture where he finds himself in Harlem teaching a Sunday school class uh, and finds himself dealing with people from all over the globe really does expose him to what the central aspects of the gospel are rather than the cultural components of religion. Uh, you know, and I, I, in my own writing, I've tried to argue that I think there's a real continuity in Bonhoeffer through to the point where he speaks about religionless Christianity uh, towards the end of his life. That that's a kind of culminating um, motif, if you like, for all of the theology that follows before. Did that experience in America and, and with Lasser and the church, did that kind of influence the book, The Cost of Discipleship, which is uh, that we know that the book at that name? Yeah, it, it did. Uh, I mean, this happens a, a good number of years beforehand. Um, I, I think that that conversation with Les, the conversations with Lesser, continuing conversations with Lesser, have a huge impact on the way in which Bonhoeffer reads the gospel. Uh, that he reads the gospel as a call to discipleship. And that that shapes everything then subsequently that he does. That he reads this as the absolute command of Jesus Christ that has to be meaningful uh, and, and has to be put into action. Um, so when he doesn't lose all of his kind of critical intellectual faculties, he lectures in Berlin after this, he um, you know, is still a kind of significant theological thinker who does important theological work through all of that time. And there's various different books that, that come uh, and lectures that come before. Uh, the book that we know is the, the Cost of Discipleship, although Bonhoeffer published it just under the title Discipleship. We, we add the cost on knowing what happened to Bonhoeffer previously. Um, uh, that book is, if you like, the culmination, it seems to me, of the life that Bonhoeffer had led up until this point. It's a book that draws on um, his sense that we have to take seriously the call of Christ to discipleship in the gospel, um, and that that is a realistic call. Um, Bonhoeffer, it, at points, seems to really present a kind of pacifist agenda, an agenda of non-resistance, that the, the easiest way or the best way, he says, to put evil down is not to resist it, but let it be exposed for what it is. Um, and and he, he bases this on the call uh, that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the, of, on the Mount to, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Um, and at one very telling moment in, in, in discipleship, Bonhoeffer addresses the question of people saying, well, this is kind of cloud cuckoo land, and what about the real world? And, and says that the Christian who says that must recognize with the fact that they are saying that Jesus Christ himself didn't know the reality of sin and evil. Hmm. Um, so Bonhoeffer recognizes that, that the centrality of Jesus Christ for the Christian is the mediating means by which all other relationships happen whether that be to other Christians, to those in the world. And, and his, his question is all of the time how to be faithful and how to be a faithful discipleship to Christ with a recognition that that is going to be costly. Give us a picture of what you understand the internal tension he must have been going through deciding how to respond to the Nazis. Because he's, here's this picture of somebody who has... Um, 
you know, pacifist leanings, can I use that term? Yeah. And yet, you know, doesn't end up, uh, it ends up making really difficult personal choices. I mean, that's a really tough question because I mean, what we're talking about is a 12-year period. Uh, and, and of course, all of us change and shift and develop through a 12-year period. Um, it, it's clear that from first to last, Bonhoeffer is absolutely opposed to Nazism and Hitler. In fact, um, almost as soon as Hitler is elected as Chancellor, Bonhoeffer uh, broadcasts a speech in opposition to the Führer concept. So right from the very beginning, he, he, he's opposed to this. Uh, and that is the kind of cantus firmus, the constant through, through everything. Um, I mean, Bonhoeffer seeks to put into practice, I think, in that context, the gospel in whatever way that he possibly can. So one way that he does this is to be involved in an illegal seminary. Uh, another way is to be present in Germany. He, he says that he couldn't be involved in the upbuilding of Germany if he wasn't there through its destruction and downfall. Um, and, and in fact, uh, on two occasions, people tried to get him out of Germany. Uh, on one occasion, he went over to America uh, to do a lecture tour and, and people were urging him to stay. Uh, and, and he came back feeling like he couldn't effectively look people in the eye afterwards if he'd not been there. Um, and his sisters are really uh, moving account from one of his sisters who says goodbye to him in, in Oxford, sending him back and, and says that, that you know, Bonhoeffer's spirituality helped them through that farewell. His sister had married um, somebody who was ethnically Jewish uh, and therefore Bonhoeffer had been involved in smuggling them across the Swiss border. Uh, and they themselves uh, ended up making home ev effectively eventually in Oxford through the duration of the war. Bonhoeffer sees them um, as he returns to Germany to uh, effectively be involved for the last time in the events of Germany and the, the church struggle through the war. Um, and his sister writes that they said goodbye not knowing when they would see each other again. Uh, and of course never saw each other again. Uh, by virtue of what happens. So Bonhoeffer, you know, recognises the need to be present. Uh, and his sister says that, that in the context of that, she had said to him, lots of people can do the work that you're doing in America or that you could do in London or that you could do outside of Germany, but only you can do the work that you can in Germany. So, so there's, there's that kind of side to him where we would look at it and think, OK, straightforwardly, this is an account of a martyr. Uh, and, and certainly Bonhoeffer has been treated a martyr. He is one of the 20th century martyrs who is remembered in Westminster Abbey. There is a statue of him there alongside other 20th century martyrs. Um, but, but his story is more complicated than that. Um, he, he's involved in things like Operation Seven, which was um, an attempt, well, a successful attempt to smuggle 14 Jewish people across the Swiss border um, at the beginnings of um, uh, the, the worst excesses of the Nazi um, engagement with, with Jews in Germany through the, through the Second World War. Um, so that's a very straightforward part of his story that's, that's clear and, and, and good and, and laudable and commendable and, and wonderful for us to remember. Where the story gets a bit more complicated is that Bonhoeffer is also involved in the assassination attempts mm. on Hitler. Mm. Um, and some people wonder whether this is a complete change. Uh, what, what happens is that uh, Bonhoeffer is going to be conscripted into the army, that it gets to the point where being a clergyman no longer means that you escape the draft or that you can just work as a chaplain. And Bonhoeffer is um, expected to be a member of the army and his brother-in-law has risen very high up in the ranks of the counterintelligence agency within the Nazi Reich, the Abwehr, 
Um, but the Abwehr was actually a counterintelligence agency that contained some of the most significant members of the resistance to Hitler. So they were kind of double double agents, if you like. Uh, and Bonhoeffer is conscripted into this. And, and there's a lot of backwards and forwards uh, because the um, Nazis aren't too sure whether this is wise. I mean, it's always the danger with somebody who's involved in counter-espionage counter is whether they're on your side or the other person's side. But they accept it because Bonhoeffer had made so many connections through his work in the ecumenical movement and had lots of connections abroad. And that was the basis on which Bonhoeffer was accepted as a, as a counterintelligence officer, effectively a member of the uh, intelligence corps within, within Germany. However, he used that position directly to undermine the Nazi government. Um, so he was involved in the two famous failed attempts to assassinate Hitler in March of 1943. Um, he was also involved directly in getting messages to Bishop Bell um, about what the situation and what the response of the Allied powers might be if they did manage to assassinate Hitler um, and, and the way in which surrender could be negotiated in that context. Uh, Bell passed on the message to Winston Churchill, in fact. So Bonhoeffer is smack bang at the center uh, of the political machinations of the Second World War. Um, Bonhoeffer, though, doesn't sit lightly with all of this. I mean, that, that's one of the, the, the really interesting things about his work. He, he writes probably, to my mind, his most important book, The Ethics, during this time and during his time in, in prison. We only have fragments of it and we have to piece it back together from what we have. And you might read the ethics thinking, well, what we're going to find in here is going to be some kind of justification for the, for the maneuvers that he takes in this way. We don't. Uh, what we find in it is uh, accounts of forgiveness, accounts of dealing with sin, uh, and accounts of something that he calls uh, uh, vicarious action. Um, so he, he calls the church to vicariously take upon itself the guilt of the world. Mm. That actually to share in the work that Christ does might mean that like Christ, we have to pour upon ourselves guilt, uh, that we might have to take the sin of the world upon ourselves. Um, and and I, I, there's no direct engagement because for, for, for reasons of being involved in the resistance, I mean, there's all kinds of stories about the way that Bonhoeffer had to you know, hide papers and put misleading papers out for the Gestapo so that they wouldn't find where uh, find out what they were up to um, for all kinds of reasons. There's no direct correlation between what Bonhoeffer does, no personal reflection on what he does and this kind of account. But, but the whole of the ethics is permeated with this sense of how to deal with reality, with worldliness, with concreteness, with a penultimate condition rather than an ultimate condition. Um, and it's not for me to imagine what goes on in Bonhoeffer's head in, in relation to all of this, but it isn't something that he engages in lightly at all. He's deeply troubled when he's asked to pray for one of the effective suicide bombers who is attempting to assassinate Hitler in 1943. Um, and he has to recognize that for him, suicide is wrong, killing is wrong. But perhaps it's the responsibility of the responsible Christian in this context to take that guilt upon themselves for the sake of the other, to share, if you like, in Christ's sacrifice, in Christ's taking on of sin. So Bonhoeffer doesn't say this is okay. He says this is still murder. This is still death. Uh, this is still not obedient to the absolute call of Christ to pray for those who persecute us. 
but perhaps we need to take that guilt upon ourselves in order to save others. Give us a picture, a very short picture of, uh, he's, he's arrested because they discover he's involved in these plots and he's moved around. Where, where, ultimately, where does he lose his life? So, so what happens, he's not, he doesn't know what he's arrested for <laughs> initially, and that's a really important part of the story. So what happens is that he's involved in the, the plots to assassinate Hitler. He's expecting a telephone call that never comes to say they've blown up Hitler and they can put the subsequent um, plan into action of, of what to do with the Nazi state. The telephone call doesn't come, uh, but a call comes two weeks later from his sister, who is married to his brother-in-law, who's very high up in the counterintelligence agency in Germany, informing him that uh, her husband has been arrested and it's only a matter of time before Bonhoeffer is going to be arrested. In fact, the, the reason for the arrest it is in the first instance because of his involvement in Operation 7 and smuggling Jews out of Germany uh, to save their lives. So he's arrested for that, but he doesn't know what it is because, of course, they won't say that in case they can get more information out. So Bonhoeffer buries, destroys, moves around papers that would be incriminating, puts out false papers for the Gestapo to try to lead them astray in terms of um, uh, finding out about what's going on in the resistance. Uh, and he's then uh, imprisoned in Tegel prison, uh, a military prison in Berlin, and interrogated uh, very vigorously throughout uh, about a period of 18 months or so. We, we know a reasonable amount about that time. Uh, he was allowed some visitors, and one of the guards smuggled out letters from Bonhoeffer, which um, uh, uh, largely to Bethke, but some, some one of... Um, uh, the people that Bonhoeffer was particularly close to, but some as well to his family. Uh, and remarkably, we, we have um, those letters. I mean, they were buried. Lots of such letters were buried and then lost or buried and subsequently destroyed or buried and looted by somebody else. Uh, but remarkably, we have them. So we have the stories uh, uh, and the theology, importantly, because a lot of the theology is done in, this, in these correspondences through this time uh, from Bonhoeffer. So he ends up in this tiny cell, one... Um, a bookshelf, uh, a chair, a, a bucket, a, a tiny bed, a six-foot cell. Um, and, and he's considered within the uh, prison to be a remarkable figure, to, to conduct himself as an aristocrat, to speak to his guards with politeness and equity. He prays for prisoners. Um, he even records some of the prayers that he writes through, through this time to try to calm those around him when there are bombings taking place in Berlin and people think they're going to lose their lives. So we, we have quite a bit of that story. Um, and that's when Bonhoeffer comes out with this remarkable idea of religionless Christianity. Um, and he continues to write about um, things like how, how we will view the world in 10 years' time and these current events. I mean, there are really remarkable bits of writing uh, in that. And, and they're wonderfully accessible because they're in the form of letters. So you can read these things and read two or three of them and, um, and just be allowed to think along with Bonhoeffer and walk along with him through that time. Um, what happens, however, in the um, most significant assassination attempt on, on Hitler, the one that's famed in, in the film Valkyrie, is that as a result of that, various co-conspirators are incriminated. So that happens in um, the summer of 1944. Uh, and in about the September of that time, it's clear uh, that Bonhoeffer has been involved in um, the assassination attempts against Hitler. Uh, Bonhoeffer is then moved to Buchenwald concentration camp. Um, and then from Buchenwald, he is placed in a prison van and taken to Flossenburg. Um, there's a story that the van broke down along the way and he was held captive 
on the Sunday before um, he eventually died, uh, the day before he died, and was asked to conduct a, a service um, for the fellow prisoners uh, in, in, a, in a small schoolroom. Um, he was then taken from um, there by a van to Flossenberg concentration camp at what seems to be the, the direct orders of Hitler. He and his fellow co-conspirators um, were tried um, in a laundry that was used as a makeshift uh, courtroom by the SS. They were court-martialed uh, and sentenced to death. Uh, and at dawn the next morning, Bonhoeffer was uh, stripped of his clothes. He knelt to pray. Um, he made his way up to the hangman's noose, prayed again and announced, this is the end for me, the beginning of life, uh, and died. Uh, there's a really fascinating account from the doctor who oversaw this, who didn't know who Bonhoeffer was. In fact, it's only really with posterity that we do know who Bonhoeffer is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Bonhoeffer wouldn't, wasn't really particularly well known in the way that, say, uh, somebody like Naimola would have been well known in the English-speaking world, uh, and more generally. He was somebody known within church circles and known uh, within the Abwehr and so on and so forth, but, but wouldn't have been a name that would trip off everybody's tongue. Uh, and, and the camp doctor writes that he has never seen somebody um, face death with such peace. Um, so, sorry, I'm getting choked even talking about it because the thought of... Um, what happens is quite remarkable, really, that here is somebody who, after in 1937, publishing a book that says that Christians have to be obedient even to the ultimate cost, when he couldn't have imagined what would have come, live that out. So, you know, for you personally, as you read all of this, as you reflect on the story, and then recognise the sort of life that most of us live in, in free, open democracies, what does it mean? What it means to me is that the Christian faith stands above all else uh, and that the Christian story is a story which captivates the imagination of culture to such a degree that Christians have to stand against evil and stand and be counted. Um, it, it, it means to me that the Christian life isn't a life lived in abstraction it isn't a life about following principles. It isn't a life that's all about precepts and laws. It's a life about seeking to be faithful to Jesus Christ in the real life context in which we find ourselves, regardless of the cost. Um, Bonhoeffer, all the way through, was very much a man of this world as well. Um, he, he talks in his later writings about the fact that Christians in the first instance are just human beings. Um, he, he's somebody who's complex. He makes mistakes. I could talk about various of the mistakes that he makes through his life. He's not straightforwardly a saint. Um, in fact, there's a, a wonderful poem uh, by him called Who Am I? where he reflects on the way that he's perceived within the prison and how he understands himself. Uh, and the poem begins with a stanza that talks about how he's seen as this aristocratic figure, how he's seen as somebody who conducts himself well. Um, and then it talks about how he understands himself to be, like a bird in a cage, empty at praying, struggling with the context that he's in, uh, um, hating the petty humiliations that he has to endure, angry, upset. And, and then the third Sunday, he asks God who he is. So he says, um, in it, am I a hypocrite? 
Um, am I one thing? Am I the other? Am I a woebegotten weakling fleeing already from a, a long-defeated army? Uh, and he ends with uh, uh, two lines which, uh, for me, uh, I think would, would summarise my own faith, which is, uh, he says, They haunt me these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am altogether thine. Um, uh, for me, in terms of what, what it means to read Bonhoeffer today, to see Bonhoeffer as somebody who influences me, influences so many people uh, around the world, is to see somebody who recognised that the call of Christianity is a call which expresses the ultimacy of the gospel in the penultimate conditions of lived human life and, and how we are to respond to a, a context of normal human existence responsibly as Christians with our responsibility resting first of all in relation to being responsible to Jesus Christ and discipleship to him and that the outworking of that is therefore being for those uh, other than ourselves, having hearts turned out to the world, having hearts concerned with the world in which that we're a part of, uh, hearts that recognise and actions that recognise that we're called to be disciples of Christ by loving God and by loving others. Um, and that that twofold movement, that the orientation towards God and the orientation towards the other, is what it means to live like Christ who fully lived his life for God and fully lived his life for other human beings. Two other things we want to do. And the, the question we're asking everybody, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer, uh, that we see that Jesus shifted human history. So for you, as you think about that, that phrase, what does Jesus the Game Changer mean for you? It would be undeniable to me, and, and surely to any historian um, of any stripe or colour, to say that Jesus wasn't one of the most, if not the most influential figures in shaping human history. Um, certainly the history of Christianity tells it for good and for ill, and, and the church should confess the significant parts of ill that, that, that has uh, associated uh, Christendom as well. Uh, but, but for me, it, it would mean about the way in which Christ captivates those who seek to follow after him, that to be a Christian is to respond to the call of Christ, um, the call to take up your cross and follow him, the call to put aside all else and, and to recognise that we are to walk in his footsteps, to take seriously his teachings. Um, to see Jesus in that kind of way, I think, is to begin to recognise the way in which uh, the one who is the captain of a Christian soul directs their life. Uh, and I would hope, as a Christian, although I, I fail every day, <laughs> But I would hope as a Christian that, that I try to live a life in that way. Uh, I belong to the Methodist Church and we have a prayer that we say once a year called the Covenant Prayer, um, where we say to God that he can put us to whatever he chooses. Um, because the key thing is to seek to follow after Christ. Uh, and wherever we are, in whatever context or situation we're in, the key thing is to try to be a disciple of Christ in that context. Um, I don't think that Christianity just changes things as some kind of cultural phenomenon. Um, in fact, I'm not too sure about Christianity as a cultural phenomenon. That's uh, one of the reasons why I like some of the work that Bonhoeffer engages in. Um, I'm not sure in Christianity, in what it means to speak of Christianity as a religion, even. Um, I think religion isn't necessarily always a very good thing. But, but I do believe in Jesus Christ. 
Um, and I do believe that in Jesus Christ, I most clearly see what God looks like. Um, and it seems to me that one of the real problems in the world today is that people have really bad views of what God looks like. Um, they, they picture God in all kinds of unhelpful ways. And actually, to my mind, to see Jesus's effects upon the world is to see the one who is God. And as God chooses to become God in a particular form and in a particular way that says that if you want to know what God looks like, look in the manger. Look at the cross. That's the shape God takes in the world. Um, that God isn't some megalomaniac, some violent soldier, some kind of Father Christmas figure in the sky, but that God is the Father of Jesus Christ. And if you see Jesus Christ, you see what God looks like. Uh, I think that's something that captivated Bonhoeffer. I think that's something that captivates me. And I just feel the impelling nature of the story of Jesus Christ, of the story of the gospel, that, that this is a story which captivates me, not as a story, but it captivates me because it tells me what God is like. Uh, it, it tells me that when I find myself in situations of difficulty, that God is there in those contexts, that God has a form that isn't about being with the great and the good, with the powerful and the almighty, but has a form which is important in the world. And that form is the form of a child born to homeless parents. It's the form of being born in a very conservative religious culture with questions about your legitimacy haunting you for the rest of your life. It's a form that breaks down social and class barriers. It's a form that is oppressed by an oppressive force through the Roman Empire. And, and, and it's a form that in the end lives graciously. If we understand grace as being a life that's lived completely and utterly out of loving kindness for the other. Um, I, I, I can't understand how Christians or people who read the gospel and, and claim to assent to it can be anything other than captured by the Jesus that they believe in, the Jesus who they believe is God. And, and how they can't understand him as the one who shapes and creates their own history. And as the God of all the world, the one who is the creator, sustainer and redeemer of all creation. And it seems to me that's the task of the church, to tell the world that it really is the world. And as really the world, it really is the world that is loved of God, created of God, reconciled by God and the world that will be redeemed by God. And that we know there's all kinds of problems and there's all kinds of pains. I'm not trying to reduce that at all. Uh, but to say that in that context, God has a particular form. And, and the form is the manger and the cross. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax-deductible and non-tax-deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Oh,